Hello, all you beautiful people, and welcome to the Glorious in the Mundane podcast. I'm your host, Christy Knuckles, and welcome to the Summer in the Psalm series. I hope this finds you settling into a new rhythm. I know that summer can sometimes be just as crazy as other seasons, and you might be more on the go now than ever. I know for us, it means three birthdays and an anniversary and several trips away. One of those birthdays will be my oldest child, Noah. He turns 18 this summer, if you can even wrap your head around that. I know I can't. If you've followed Nathan and I since our watermark days, you might remember that we lost two babies before we had Noah, and he was definitely the son that we prayed for. I remember even complete strangers sending us baby gifts and congratulations. So it's going to be such a sweet time celebrating his 18th. He's just been such a joy to raise. And our little Annie, she'll be turning 11. She's our youngest. We're planning a 50s-style party here for her at the house, as per her request, because she too is an old soul. I told my friend Brittany about her requesting a 50s party, and she said, girl, what does she know about the 50s? Nathan and I also celebrate 23 years together this summer, along with his birthday. He's turning 40-something, and we'll also do quite a bit of traveling together as a family, along with some house renovations. So it's just going to be busy around here. All the more reason that I just wanted to have the calm and steady of the Psalms for us this summer. I know we're all going to need it. As a songwriter, the Psalms have always been my go-to, especially when it comes to daily survival in the mundane. Scholars believe, as you know, that David wrote most of the Psalms. I don't know if it's because David was a skilled musician and a songwriter that I connect with him, or maybe it's just his rawness and his ability to cry out to God so honestly in every situation, but I've always connected so deeply. Psalms is a collection of 150 poems that were meant to be sung by the people of God. The word psalm comes from the Greek word psalmos, which in Hebrew simply means song. These songs are a beautiful tool for us to be able to join in or even send our echo back to the ancient voices who first wrote and sang these songs of our faith. Isn't that beautiful to think about? I remember when Nathan and I got to participate in the Passion Hymns album. It was called Hymns, Ancient and Modern, and we each got to choose two hymns that spoke to us, and we even got to add new sections to the hymns. And I loved thinking of it as me echoing back to those hymn writers from long ago saying, we're carrying on the song. One of the hymns that I chose was called Ferris Lord Jesus. I mean, who could pass up getting to sing, Ferris Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God and man the Son, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Fair are the meadows, fairer still the woodlands, robed in the blooming garb of spring. Jesus is fairer, Jesus is purer, who makes the woeful heart to sing. Fair is the sunshine, fairer still the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry host. Jesus shines brighter, Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. And we added a bridge to this song that seemed to echo back, You are fairer still today. You are fairer still today. Precious Jesus, Lord, you are adored as we worship, as we worship. I'll never forget a few years ago at the Passion Conference where Nathan and I served for 20 years, we stood yet again in front of an arena full of young people, ready to be led, 
hearts on the edge of their seats just waiting for someone to affirm in them what they hope is true of their lives. I remember John Piper took the stage just as we finished singing, and he reminded us, as the church, as we all stood there, he said, do you realize that we are the only religion that sings? There might be religions who chant or meditate, but to joyfully sing and shout, clap and praise, particularly in response to our God, we're the only ones. What a privilege. Have you ever thought, too, that we're the only species that can actually make a clapping sound with our hands? Even gorillas or monkeys we get closely associated with in science, even they have thick pads on their palms and can't make that crisp sound that a clap makes. You and I were made to worship. We were made to sing, to clap, to rejoice, to respond. It's an honor. It's what we were made to do. I think I've told you that recently I've fallen in love with the symphony. The Shermerhorn Symphony Hall here in Nashville is a sight to behold all on its own. If you ever get the chance to go, you need to. It's a special place. And it's an experience that I think everyone, especially kids, need to experience at least one time in their lives. Here's what I love about it. First of all, Nathan and I are usually some of the youngest people in the entire hall. I love looking out and seeing a sea of people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s dressed in their best with the posture of appreciation for community and the arts and timeless works of composers gone by. Though I'm known to be a bit fidgety and informal, actually, I feel oddly at home at the symphony. If you've never been, you must understand that there's such formality and etiquette to the whole thing, which again, I'm just not one to get dressed up and go do fancy things, and Nathan knows this about me, but somehow the symphony is different. We just went last night to see Verdi's Requiem, and it was the last night in our series that we had purchased for the symphony year, and it was about a 150-voice choir singing along with our symphony and four feature vocalists, which is how Verdi wrote the Requiem to be performed. It's a very heavy and almost somber-sounding work as it was written lyrically as a setting of the Catholic funeral mass. In particular, he composed the music to honor an Italian poet and author that he admired to commemorate his passing. At the start of the symphony, there's usually a formal greeting to the crowds and the patrons of the symphony, sort of giving you an explanation of what tonight's performance is all about. Then the concert master, who is the first chair violinist, comes out in his tuxedo and he bows to the crowd and everyone cheers for him. He's a hometown favorite at this point and he's been the concert master for the Nashville Symphony since, I think, 2011. He then faces the orchestra orchestra and plays a note on his violin, and the whole orchestra tunes their instrument to his. Then he sits down, and then there's complete silence. After a few moments, the side door opens and in walks any special performers for the night. Last night, it was the four vocalists I mentioned, a bass, tenor, soprano, and a mezzo-soprano, which still sounds like soprano, but a mezzo-soprano's tone is usually warmer and their range a little lower than a traditional soprano. Then the conductor comes in last. Everyone loves it when the conductor arrives and everyone claps and claps, even though not one note has been played yet. He gazes into the audience as we continue to clap. He looks up into the bow 
balconies and down into the first few rows, just showing his appreciation with his eyes for the patrons of the symphony. And we're all clapping just based on his reputation and the reputation of the symphony. We're cheering in advance because he and his symphony are renowned. There's expectation in the room that it's going to be great, whatever it is. And then as he turns around, silence falls again. And when I say silence, I mean the most deafening silence falls on the entire room. I mean it when I say that you could hear a pin drop. He waits for complete silence, and then he starts. Last night, he raised his baton, and just as he counted in the cellos for the first measure, someone's phone rang. Not to mention the Tennessee allergies were at play in the room as about 29 people were coughing as well. It sounded like flu season in there. So he stops. It was so intense. (laughs) We are all literally hanging on his every move as his back is turned to us and his baton is just waiting there. We're all waiting with him. He waits again for complete silence. He literally commands the room with this humble authority As he waits, he doesn't turn around and give everyone a disappointed look. He just stands there and he waits. Then he raised his baton again, and then it was off to the races. Then you have to know when to clap and when not to clap. Mostly you can kind of look at the program and you know that there are going to be about two movements in the first half, so you will only clap twice. Once after the first movement is over, and again after the second movement is over, and then you move into intermission. It sounds very intense, I know, but I love it so much because where else can you go in society today, outside the church at least, to find a multi-generational community gathered in their best on just a weeknight, leaning in together in reverence and silence even to appreciate something together, to remember together, to enjoy beauty together. And best of all, no cell phones anywhere, except that one that rang, but I bet he put it away really fast. One pretty special feature about last night's show was that some of the violinists were playing violins from the Violins of Hope. The Violins of Hope are a collection of restored instruments played by Jewish musicians during the Holocaust. These violins that were played by our orchestra last night survived concentration camps, though the musicians who played them did not survive. After a very long journey, and of course, incredible story after story, these restored instruments made their way to Nashville for the last few months to help facilitate a citywide dialogue about music, art, social justice, and free expression. And it culminated into these violins being incorporated into the Requiem. It was so beautiful. I just love the intentionality of the arts, how it brings history alive in a way, but also that it preserves a sense of respect that I think our country is losing footing on in what feels like a landslide. Gone are the days where you can go anywhere in your community and see and feel that mutual sense of reverence and respect towards something. It's also a spiritual experience for me. There's something about music that helps us preach to our own souls It helps us encourage ourselves in the Lord, which is part of what we're called to do as followers of Jesus, to keep encouraging our own souls in the Lord, reminding yourself as you sing or hear music that He is beautiful, He is good, and He's here. 
I teared up during worship at church the other day as I found myself standing there having just walked through such a dark season of trusting God with my physical health. I've shared with you, praise God, my ears have been continuing to level out as far as all the symptoms I was having. Even my doctor continues to just sit there amazed at my hearing test. The most recent test just a few weeks ago revealed even more healing than before. There was a dip I had in my hearing back in February, and it's simply not there anymore. I honestly find it so hard to believe I'm even saying those words out loud, and I mean that, but I thought about God's faithfulness through it, the intimacy with Him that it brought, how He reminded me yet again at the very start of a new year what is most valuable to Him, to stay close to His heart and sit at His feet. But as I sang in church, I thank God for the ability to sing my belief for the next season of trial. I know it will come. Jesus said we will have trouble, but to take heart, He's already overcome. So I teared up as I prayed, let this lay a foundation for what's to come. It's scary to live like that sometimes and pray like that because it causes us to have to step into mystery and eternity, really, to live like this really isn't our home and to live beyond what we see to what God is wanting to do through and because of and in spite of every trial in our lives. It's not the fun way to live or the popular thing to talk about for sure, but I love that I could join my voice with ancient voices, even on Sunday, around the faithfulness of God for what was, for what is, and for all that is to come. I trusted Jesus during worship out loud as I just prayed and thanked Him even for this summer series. Even though I hadn't pushed record or even gathered my thoughts fully to push record, I trusted Him that He's the original content creator of all time. He's an endless well, and I'm not. It's only when my empty well is filled to the rim with Him that I can offer anything worth anything. So I praise Him in advance that He was always going to have the content that I needed. I just get to trust Him for it every single time I sit down. I thank Him for the letters I get from you guys when you say, down to the specifics, how only God could have known what you needed to hear and when. And I thank Him for that over and over, and I trust He'll do it again. Sometimes during worship at church, I don't always feel what I'm singing, so I kind of do this little exercise. Sometimes I take one hand and I pound a fist into the palm of my other hand, along with the words on the screen to the beat. I know that sounds strange, but it helps me turn the words on the screen to belief into a prayer. And I pray Jesus will help me believe this and live this. And like I said this past Sunday, I prayed, help me store this up for later when I need to stand on it. I love that the Psalms are the whole gamut of human emotions. And not only do they help us emote what we're feeling, but they help us shape what we're believing. It's actually not in our nature to automatically just trust God in the trial. So it's really beautiful that songs can help us form our belief and put the words in our mouths and in our hearts and under our feet. I also love that praise and thanks and adoration is just part of how we worship God. Did you know that about a third of the Psalms are actually songs of lament? The primary purpose of lament is giving us words to take our troubles and our pain and our hardships to the Lord. Songs of lament are a deep cry of desperation and even question if the Lord has completely forgotten us. But I love how they always circle back around to the faithfulness of God. Listen to Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, 
Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, for I am shaken. But here's the beautiful turn here. I love this. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. How honest, how applicable, how useful for us. How beautiful that these are the conversations of worship. Yes, we praise and we give thanks and we adore, but we also get to cry out. We get to wonder, we get to wrestle, we get to ask why. What an invitation to bring it all and then follow the pattern that Scripture lays out for us to circle back around to His faithfulness, even if we have to pound our fist into our other palm to say, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. Read Psalm 22 sometime and you'll see the ebb and flow of lament and praise and trust. Lament, praise, and trust. That's real life, isn't it? That's the mundane. That's applicable. And it's not this far off lofty way of worshiping God. It's where the rubber meets the road kind of worship. And this is what we crave, right? I get a little bit introspective in church, if you can't tell. And this past Sunday, another thing that I did while one of our pastors, CZ, was preaching was just glance around the room. Our sanctuary is set up theater style so that it's the flattest at the front and then slants up towards the back of the room. So if you sit on the wings or the sides, you can look left or right and kind of see a whole sea of faces. And as CZ was preaching on Soul Rest, which is actually a book that he's releasing today, that I'm very excited about to read, as he talked about rest, which you know that is so near and dear to my heart, I looked around at the people and I was just reminded of our need, just our need for God and honestly how we show up week after week at church in need of something that's going to touch our soul. CZ preached so well this message that you can tell has been burning on his heart and you could almost see the thirst of the people, sort of this collective give us something that we can take into the real world. When I think about a lifestyle of worship in the mundane, I think about my farm table epiphany that I've shared with you many times of how God invited me into something deeper than I was experiencing at the time and me taking Him up on it, even though I was scared to death and didn't even know yet what it looked like to trust Him like He was asking me to trust Him. That farm table, which we still have and we still eat at every single day, is this constant reminder that He meets me right where I am. Yes, He meets us when we carve out time and when we light the candles and we pave the way for communion, but He also meets us unexpectedly in a thousand different ways we never would have thought of. He's spontaneous, He's present, and He's way more creative than you and I are. For some of us, He might use the big reach or the big net of our lives, assuming you're caught up on the last episode, you'll know what I mean by that. But He uses both to reveal Himself, Some like me, he had to help me see that my small net was raggedy and weak and needed tending. This is where he met me and spoke in the sweetest way. Though there were moments it was painful, 
He knew it was exactly what I needed, and it came right when I needed it to happen. The world we live in and the pace in which we navigate it is so full of chaos and confusion, and it often sets a trap for us. But Jesus, He sets a table, and He says, come. To me, the table represents the everyday for all of us. It represents nourishment. And since most of us don't have young maidens around to cook for us or a private chef, it represents what we need from it and what we bring to it. I love that this invitation from Jesus in the mundane encompasses both what we need and what we bring. He covers them both, and both can come from Him. So everything you're particularly thirsty for today can be satisfied in Him alone, and everything you have to get done or make happen or come up with today, kind of like I felt at church as I look forward to this summer series, it can come from this place of meeting Him at that table. I'm going to be a bit honest with you about what I literally have to bring to the table as a woman and a mom. Just like many of you, it's actual meals ready for consumption by people. I will say, coming up with meals and going to the grocery store and executing those meals is not my gifting. I mean, I can sometimes come to the table with something that's pretty good for the most part. I will just say this. It is a struggle for me, pretty much always. The reason it's such a struggle is that I complicate it. I see recipe after recipe on Instagram and Pinterest, and I allow myself to look to the left or the right as a cook. And for the most part, it's just a major cooking fail. I also want to love it. I want it to be life-giving and easy, but it's not easy for me yet. And trust me, I've signed up for every meal plan this and schedule out that. And look, it's all done for you right here. And I've tried all of that. And I've ended up with three kids just looking at me like, what is this? <laughs> I constantly have to surrender this area of my life to God, as funny as it sounds. And I have to give myself grace for it. Nathan is great about giving me grace in this area. And we have this term in our house that's, are we just doing whatever for dinner? Doing whatever for dinner is just stating that everyone is on their own, basically, that there's plenty of leftovers of something, and you're going to be fine, and you're going to live through the night. (laughs) All of that to say, I always come back to this. Our family just has the stuff that we like, and there's stuff that we don't like. When I just give myself grace, all the while staying faithful in making the staples that I know everyone enjoys, and yes, throwing in something new every once in a while. But for the most part, just sticking with the stuff we all know and love, it actually has an ebb and flow to it that's doable. That farm table is most vibrant and full of conversation when I come to it just like I am, confident in what I bring to the table, and honestly knowing there's just a simplicity to what I bring, but knowing that there can be excellence in that simplicity. And to top it all off, the goal is always the enjoyment of just being with those people who are at the table with me. Most of our family dinners end in trivia. I know that sounds funny, but we have a mix of cards that are just pulled from three or four different games that we already have, and we keep them near the table. And most nights, our youngest, Annie Rose, who I'm pretty sure is a seven on the Enneagram, which means that she's an enthusiast, She always instigates it, always, and she keeps score, and she runs the whole thing start to finish. I think I told you that Annie was the ringleader of our entire New Year's Eve party with trivia. We had about a dozen teenagers almost twice her age at our house that night, and here's little Annie Rose, 
our 10-year-old, and she had all of them in the palm of her hand with trivia after dinner. It was glorious. But anyway, getting to the table is most of the battle. And once I'm there, it's all about the communion, the smiles, the laughter, the love. And it's sort of the perfect full circle ending to my lament as a cook. (laughs) It reminds me so much of myself meeting Jesus in the mundane at the table and how I try to complicate it. Sometimes I even try to avoid it altogether. I definitely ponder if I need to clean this up or that up or bring something really spectacular to the table that's really going to catch his eye and impress him. Or maybe he'll finally heal this thing if I finally bring him this. He simply just says, come as you are, though, meaning drop everything and just bring you. There can still be excellence and simplicity. He can still show up if you only have about 10 minutes to sit still. You can come to the table expectant. He's like that conductor I mentioned He's already renowned in your world for showing up before. He's already met you before, right where you are. And you should know He's going to do it again. Today's psalm is Psalm 23. It might seem an obvious psalm to bring to this series, but since there can still be excellence and simplicity, let's just go with it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's something about the Word of God being spoken over you, isn't there? Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So our faith is built, and our hearing, it's the sense of hearing all the way through to even your heart. It comes by the Word of God. I think, too, that we are currently so starved for anything that declares something over us that's beyond this world. We crave the eternal. We crave meaning and hope and life. Yet starting from the top of the passage, it says, as clear as day, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Word of God is living and active, and it's supposed to relieve us all over again as we hear it and read it and consume it. We're supposed to say, oh yeah, He's my shepherd, and when I'm near Him, I lack nothing. When I'm near Him, I actually forget about needing to make a way for myself. The craving gets satisfied again. The thirst here is quenched. Here is where I lack nothing. Here is where He makes me lie down in green pastures. That whole phrase there, He makes me lie down, comes from one Hebrew word called rabats. It means to lie down, but the important part is that it means to make to lie down or to make to fold or rest. It's so hard for us to rest, isn't it? We often just don't choose it. We don't afford ourselves that luxury sometimes. So what comfort to be reminded that even when we might fight it at first, with this shepherd, 
He knows when it's time for us to rest, and staying near Him means rest. Yes, He might have to literally fold us or make us lie down. I think there are times when this is inevitable. It's usually when we've gone our own way. If you've done any kind of research on sheep, it's pretty fascinating, especially that we are referred to so many times as sheep, that we're the flock, and Jesus is our shepherd. David, being a shepherd, you know that he must have seen a million parallels to his own life, his own heart, and the Holy Spirit was so generous to us to give us David's account in the Scriptures, so relatable and real as a shepherd. I think about all the different scenarios he must have found himself in, learning from the stubbornness of sheep, God teaching him all the way. Yes, there were times that he might have had to reach down to his anxious sheep and literally fold their legs to lay them down. This is usually when there's distress, extreme anxiousness, or when they've eaten themselves sick or wounded themselves. Out of loving necessity, he lays them down. But as always, there's this kind of being laid down to rest that doesn't require him having to literally fold us. This kind of rest must bring the shepherd great joy. This kind of rest happens when the sheep choose to lie down in green pastures because they feel at rest in their shepherd's care. They lack for nothing. There's no sense of fear of predators. There's green pasture all around. There's a clean brook to drink from. And they know their shepherd's voice and it comforts them to a place of choosing rest. I think about all those nap times when my kids would fight the rest. Obviously, you can't fold a toddler's legs and make him lay down in his bed. (laughs) As much as you might want to, he'll just pop right back up and squall in your face. So as a mother, you begin to get very skilled at presenting an environment where they will give in to the rest. Even when they'd cry all the way up the stairs, I remember I resisted the urge to fight back at them and correct them. I would often just start singing right over the squalling. I would sing all the way up the steps to their room. I'd sing while I turned on the white noise sound machine that always signifies that it's rest time. I'd sing while I pulled the blackout fabric over the windows. Yes, we fully lined our kids' windows with pieces of blackout fabric that we could Velcro in and out morning and night and nap times. It was so worth it. I'd keep singing while I pulled off their sandy socks from the playground and brushed off their little feet. I'd sing while I put on their pull-up and turned off the lamp. I'd keep singing as I'd start to trace the lines in their little nose and eyebrows and lips with my finger until the squalls turned into little sniffles and their body became limp and I'd watch them give in to rest. After all, when we rest, that is best. I know as a mama the joy that comes when you just have those days that they respond and give in to rest like that when all our work in caring for them pays off and we watch them respond to our care for them. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our soul. Verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. As we walk through turbulent seasons, we are quick to forget that He is with us. I was reading a little bit about sheep and the importance of the rod and the staff 
of the shepherd. In Psalm 23, the rod and the staff are two separate words there. The rod is more like a club as a method of defense. The shepherd uses the rod to ward off predators as he gets between the predator and the sheep to defend them. But it's also used to even correct the sheep, which is always out of love, and it's always for their protection. When sheep try to go their own way, it opens them up to predators or to go off of a cliff or to get trapped in a fence. The rod keeps them close to the shepherd's side. The staff is more like a crook that we typically see that's used to guide and steer and actually rescue if needed. I learned that sheep have what's called a point of balance, which means that they prefer that people stay shoulder adjacent to them to give them some space, basically. So the crook for the shepherd gives him an arm's reach, basically, without reaching their point of balance. I also learned that sheep, when being stubborn, like not wanting to go into their pen at night to rest, but rather wanting to stay and literally eat themselves sick. So it's the job of the shepherd to move them into safety and into rest. Sheep have the most strength actually against the shepherd when they have their heads down. So what the shepherd does with the crook is hook them around the neck and he pulls their chin up. And with their chin up, they're able to be moved easily into safety and into rest. Sound familiar? (laughs) I know it does for me. It's that head down mentality that we talked about in the heart postures where we're so quick to get that tunnel vision that begins to distort all the possibilities of life and rest around us. But I love that we have a shepherd in the valley of the shadow of death with us who understands what's best for us, who knows when it's time to move in and to lift our head so that we're on the move again. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, verse 5. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The world sets that trap for us. Jesus sets a table. In biblical times when the Psalms would refer to enemies, it's important to remember that these were Old Testament times and that they were living under Old Testament ethics, which were kind of moral indignation type issues like the righteous against the ungodly. This is back when there were camps and wars and tribes. For David, he knew what it was like to literally have to hide in caves from a spear-throwing Saul. We might not be outrunning an actual predator or a spear-throwing king, but that word enemy there in Psalm 23, I think is pronounced sarar, and it means adversary. It means to bind up or be in or bring stress. It means narrower. I couldn't help but think of narrower in parallel with the deceiver. He's pretty good at narrowing our view, isn't he? He's a crafty one at getting us with our heads down, wanting our own way, enough to even resist the shepherd. He sometimes gets his head down enough that we become our own worst enemy. Jenny Shutt, author of Waking Up Gray, I've shared before, even says of Psalm 23, that as we come to the table and He anoints our head with oil, He anoints us, even if we are our own worst enemy. He fully accepts us, and even setting a table for us in spite of our own self-contempt, our addictions, our pious self-righteousness, and even our wounds that we bring. And yes, we tend to bring our wounders and our narrowers to the table with us, don't we? 
It's difficult, isn't it, to do the kind of surgery that finally cuts them away. We're all on that journey because I do believe it is possible. I've seen that kind of forgiveness in my day where you can pray the cross between you and that person where only the love of God can remain. For some of us, it might be someone that we've sat at the dinner table many, many nights with. If not nightly in your home, maybe holidays at least a few times a year. As I researched about sheep for this episode, I came across a modern shepherd named Ray Carmen, an everyday sheep farmer who produces videos of his mundane with his sheep, and I came across one called The Rejected Lamb. In this episode, Ray was showing us that a mother lamb had gotten separated earlier from her day-old lamb, and by that afternoon, she was rejecting the lamb completely. It was the most excruciating thing. I could honestly barely watch it. This day-and-a-half-old lamb kept trying to nurse, and this mama sheep was only accepting the other little lamb and was literally headbutting this little girl lamb away from her. The little one kept trying to nurse, and she would mainly turn around and butt her away and turn her back on this little sweet lamb. All the while, Ray, the shepherd, calmly just is sitting there sharing how we needn't worry that this little lamb would be more than okay. And the reason that she would be more than okay, and Ray was delighted to share with us, that he and his family were going to get to bottle feed this little lamb that very day and snuggle her up and love her and raise her close to the shepherd and his family. He tells us that he's seen this happen over and over, a mama rejecting her own, and how he will swoop in and raise that little lamb. And he talked about his delight over the adult sheep whom he's gotten to raise in this way, and how they still come running to him when they're older because they know his voice and there's a special bond that they have because the shepherd specifically raised them. I kept wanting him to turn around and like tell that mama, stop being ugly to this little baby lamb and you need to accept her. I kept wanting him to swoop in and kind of like make it all okay. But it was so sweet how he calmly reassured us that it was going to be his delight to get to raise this baby lamb. So yes, our narrower or our enemy might be painfully that close and reject us. But we have a shepherd who delights in raising us close to his side. And he's not worried for us because he knows we'll have the best care there is. This is how you come to the table today. Maybe the surgery isn't complete, like I said. Maybe it's all still such a mess. But it doesn't change the fact that he says, come as he sets a table for you today. I don't know why I always imagine it in the middle of a lush forest. As you sit down, you're relieved that his table covers everything. It covers all your stains, scars from chains, scratches from thickets from all your running. And here he comes with beauty for ashes, a crown of flowers adorning your head. You sheepishly grin as all around you All you see is welcome. Your new garment is called praise, and the oil now dripping down your head is called joy. He lavishes on you his finest to say, you're the one, you're chosen. No, you didn't do anything to deserve this. You were just going about your business 
in the mundane, and I found you, and this is what happens when my own let me find them, and when they respond to my care. You get hemmed in, you give in, and you fold to rest, and surely, yes, surely, goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, because this is home. With all of those images in your mind, I'll leave you with Psalm 23, the message version. God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. You have bedded me down in lush meadows. You find me quiet pools to drink from. True to your word, you let me catch my breath and send me in the right direction. Even when the way goes through Death Valley, I'm not afraid when you walk at my side. Your trusty shepherd's crook makes me feel secure. You serve me a six-course dinner right in front of my enemies. You revive my drooping head. My cup brims with blessing. Your beauty and love chase after me every day of my life. I'm back home in the house of God for the rest of my life. I'll talk to you soon.